Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the second weekend of October 2021. We are definitely into the fall season. Had a nice large fall storm last Friday and Friday night and Saturday, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But in the meantime, I just wanted to mention that if you are seeing anything out there, this is the time of year for vagrant birds and uh, good time to be out looking. If you're seeing anything that seems unusual to you or that you just want to talk, share about, please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or you can get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. The guest I have for this week is Kitty Labounty, who is a regular guest here, although it's been a few months since we've talked, I think, for the show. You were last on in February, so I imagine we have some summer and I guess spring really activities in summer and into the fall activities. But I thought maybe we'd start with the storm of last week. Uh, it was a large storm and not a lot of people posted on Facebook and social media that kind of meme image with North America and showing this tiny little hurricane out in the Atlantic and this massive, massive storm in the Gulf of Alaska. I think that has to do with how those form. The winds actually were a little higher in the hurricane than they were here. But it was interesting to track that storm across the Gulf of Alaska and it hit the hit here at night, uh, the the strongest winds and so forth. And you living on an island, you, uh, I guess maybe you experience it a little more directly than some of the rest of us that are tucked away inland. Do you find that the case? Well, hi. I was going to say thanks for asking me to be on today's show. Um, yes, the storms often feel a bit different, but I think it depends on where you live on the island, what your general exposure is. Um, mine's due south. Um, I'm kind of on the end of the island, so southwest, southeast, I kind of get all of that. Um, so you do... The storms can be quite audible, and they're shaking windows, and, you know, the the vent, there's the vent over the stove is usually one of my gauges for, like, okay, it's windy now, because the whole thing is shaking, you know, the wind's blowing back in. Um, So the the windows were shaking, the vents were shaking, you know, the house does a little shake because it's on pilings. Um, But, you know, it's like, it didn't seem like it was that bad. Um, We've had bigger ones in the past that were... Or more like, oh my goodness, you know, I'm going to go sleep down in the basement. <laughs> um, but this wasn't that bad um, in terms of, you know, overall, it, it seemed like it didn't keep me up all night. I would wake up every once in a while. I think the the strongest winds that were sort of sustained were overnight, but the peak gust actually was in the evening here in Sitka at the airport. It hit 75 in one particular gust. I, yes, that was unnerving, probably also because I was um, hosting um, a talk through evenings at Egan that night, and about at that time um, that the gusts were really pretty strong was when that was that talk was just getting started. So I had to tell people, it was like, uh, the power could go out. I could disappear at any moment. Um, hopefully I'll still be here, but keep on listening to the speaker. It'll be a great talk. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing to me about this particular storm, or one of the interesting things, was to watch the Cape Edgecombe buoy, which topped out at 41 feet, I think, at 9 in the evening. Of course, it's further 
west and the storm got there sooner. Also a bit further south, I think it was looking at the maps, like there's windy.tv or something. There's a number of different uh, sites that you can look at that'll show the sort of wind map and that kind of thing. And it appeared that the buoy was just the edge of the peak winds Hmm. uh, that were in the leading edge of the storm and then caught a little bit of the trailing edge winds as well, both of which are on the south south side of the actual low pressure uh, center. The peak winds there, I can't remember, I think they they put those in knots, but I think the peak winds there were um, not quite as high, the the peak gust wasn't quite as high, but um, it looks like 72 mile an hour gust approximately and and 52 mile an hour sustained winds out at the buoy, this is open ocean, Uh, but the wave height peak was 41 feet, (laughs) which... For those who don't like follow the weather buoy, is my understanding looking at the data descriptions is that's the the two thirds mark. So one third of the waves are actually bigger than that, hmm. and two thirds are are that height or smaller. So uh, a third of your waves were were at least forty one feet tall, which is what I don't know, Big. like a three and a half four story <laughs> building. Yeah, a uh, good day to be not in a boat, not in a boat, out at right? Sea. <laughs> uh, and th- that only showed up, I think, during one measurement period. They just uh, put waves in once an hour, wave heights once an hour. But I was, I think the highest I'd ever seen before was maybe 39 feet. And of course, many years, the conditions out there are harsh and the buoys don't always, uh, you survive. know, survive. They sometimes will miss some parts or all of seasons before they're able to get out there and, and replace them. But uh, I think the highest uh, measurement I've seen out there before was 39 feet. Uh, this this storm, the wave heights were above 30 feet for eight hours uh, that were from basically 8 o'clock uh, one evening, Friday evening, until 4 a.m. the next morning before they dropped below 30 feet again, which to me, that that like that's pretty sustained uh, high, high waves. Uh, they do have a, as of, I think it's been out there for a little over a year now, but the buoys also now have a camera, so you can pull up the camera views. Of course, when it was the middle of the night, it's just dark, but... Uh, there were a couple of camera views that looked impressive, uh, you know, the, where, where it looks like you're looking uphill at these right. waves that are forming. So is there an easy way for folks to find that the buoy data online? Yeah, it's, um, it's through the NOAA site, and I, I'll put a link to it uh, when I post the, post the show on my, on my site. But it's um, 46084, 46084, I think is the buoy number. Mm, it's so you need Cape to know the buoy, buoy number. Or yeah. Cape Edgecombe buoy. Yeah. And Noah has, you can actually look at all their buoys. I also checked out the Fairweather Grounds buoy. There's, there's one up at the Fairweather Grounds. So I think that's about 150 miles north. And it never, the seas never got nearly as big. I mean, oh, they were still big. They were only 20 feet, but uh, only. They were over 20 feet, I right. should say. big enough. <laughs> plenty plenty large. But they were, those weren't the, the source waves. Those were like the swells coming from the big push that was hmm. happening down, down this way. So it is interesting to just track that and see. I mean, it's big seas regardless, but, but where you are makes a big difference. I remember seeing some of the storms, like some really deep lows in the Aleutians within the last few years where they were forecasting 60-foot waves out there with some of the intense sustained winds. I think it takes both strong winds and sustained winds to to build seas that large. But it is, yeah, something we get, of course, some surf coming in, we get to see the waves and, and a little bit of that. But it always does make me wonder what it's like on the outer coast on those on those days where, you know, it's just... 
I can tell you that right you in. don't really want to be in the forest. Yeah. From from personal experience. So for me, always the interesting part of a storm is what has happened <laughs> that I usually go check out after the storm. So um, went into town on sat no yeah saturday morning cuz my daughter needed to go to work and it wasn't a suitable day in my mind for her little tiny open skiff um and it didn't look that bad you know i'll, I'll go back to what the forest looked like it did look that bad but you get out in front of crescent harbor and it was like oh oh i wish i wasn't here right now <laughs> and kind of my meter is like how often am i swearing while i'm driving <laughs> and there was a lot of swearing happening it was all fine but i was like i think i'll just tie up and stay here you know until this kind of settles down and we probably just hit a squall wrong but the the waves really pile up in you know in that area right by crescent when the winds from a certain direction southwest and it was freaking nasty is all i gotta say um still okay but yeah nasty um but the other thing that was interesting so is leaving the house and walking through the forest down to the dock so it's about a half a mile and you know meanders through some older certainly not really it's post it was cut by the Russians, so that's about the age of the trees. Or, you know, they're they're getting on, but they're they're not that old. Um, and then, so I walked through the the part of the forest that was close to the house, and I'm like, eh, no big deal. There's actually no trees down, which kind of amazed me. Um, got a little bit past up towards where our quarry lake is, and there were a couple of um, hemlocks across the trail, but you know, kind of went through those, and I was like, okay, that was interesting because they actually took a wind uh they were knocked down from the southwest so and they were kind of on a little slope and not a lot of it was kind of a it, it was an easy spot to see why those trees went over but then we got down to what you know what we call lot 13 or the common area which is all fill so the quarry lake came because all the gravel was dug out and used for airport expansion years and years ago and so all of that was fill. And on top of that fill over the years, red alders and sick alders have grown up, a few willows, um, but basically deciduous. And honestly, it looked like a bomb had gone off there, which kind of surprised me. I've, you know, maybe I've seen some trees start to tip, but we counted like stems down and there were between 42 and 44 trees um, now, some of those are red alders, so they're legit trees, and others were, um, you know, some Sitka, bigger Sitka alders. Um, but there's not much soil development down there, so they just, like, tipped over. There weren't any snaps. Um, but it made quite um, a mess to actually figure out how to get through. Yeah, it. the trees falling down was one thing with this storm. The places I visited, I mean, you described that one. And it's interesting how those kind of things can happen in pockets. I don't know if like there's little microburst downdraft kind of things that happen or, or particular sustained gusts that are, are the source of those. I remember storms in the past where it seemed like there's trees down all over town. Uh, this one, I didn't, I noticed a couple of trees down, but I didn't get the impression that there was huge numbers of trees down, uh, just little pockets here, right. here and there. And so it is interesting how that, that might work and, and direction of course makes a big difference. The, the winds were in the Southeast earlier and then overnight they shifted to the southwest and then by the morning they were i think mostly kind of southwest westerly and that's a direction we don't usually get strong winds from here it doesn't seem like the 
squalls that were coming through, it had shifted to this convective cell kind of situation where you're getting these showers and squalls that are moving through, as you described, coming into the harbor with one of those. And I noticed that when I was out, it was like, it was sunny and it was breezy. It was never not breezy, but but then there would be times when it was extra breezy. Yes. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) there were... uh, stuff going on it was also interesting to note the uh, birds that got blown in uh, for the second time I, it makes me wonder now seeing it twice within less than a month uh, shear waters from shore if that's not as unusual as i might have expected i just have never thought to go look so that's entirely possible or maybe it is unusual uh, but there were shear waters um, i saw them all the way up by harbor point which mm-hmm. is pretty far in uh, that's not that far off, you know, getting out towards the ferry terminal, looking in there, Shearwaters and Fulmars, uh, not Fulmars, uh, Shearwaters and uh, Storm Petrels, both leeches and Forktailed Storm Petrels, and then Murs. But I think Murs hang out there. Uh, it's not that unusual to see them. That's some deep water up in there. Uh, then all the way, I saw leeches, Storm Petrels right along the shore at Seamart, which was kind of fun. Uh, leeches has always been a little bit of a mystery to me because they come in at night. People find them stranded or dead. Uh, they get turned into the Raptor Center. But it's really much, much less common to see them on the water than the Forktail Storm Petrels, as best I can tell. So something's going on. And and maybe it was I was out early in the morning, and maybe as the day goes on, they, they tend to leave the shore area more quickly than the Forktails do. Because there were still Forktails around. Even the next day, there was there plenty of those around. Yeah. You know? uh, it was fun to observe those in the channel and, and to you see know, those How many did shore. we count in the channel? Yeah, so it was like seventy. Yeah, that would have been last Sunday. There was yeah. there was at least seventy. There was probably quite a few more than that because they were they were all the way up to mm-hmm. that north end breakwater, and it was a little harder to count those. But there was fifty basically right on the water near Eliasson Harbor on the outer float there, as well as more in the inner channel, kind of out in front of UAS. So those were, uh, yeah, it's always fun to observe those more pelagic birds when they get blown in during the storms. The storm petrels in particular seem to be a little unwary of the eagles. I saw, I didn't see any eagles <laughs> catching storm petrels this year. Uh, in prior years when we've had storm petrels around town, close to shore for extended periods, it's not been unusual to find the, just the, um, just like the, the collarbone and wing bones with the, with the primary feathers left of these storm petrels that have been presumably caught by eagles or other raptors. Uh, this year I saw an eagle going after a leech's storm petrel, but without success mm-hmm. uh, in the channel. So, yeah, that's another another thing that's kind of interesting. Uh, the, the unusual birds, I don't know if um, any other rare birds showed up. We saw a couple of Pacific golden plovers in the days after, but it's hard to say whether those were from the storm or not, but they easily could have been. Uh, they typically would migrate, I think, just across the Pacific Ocean from like South Central into Hawaii uh, and then on, <laughs> on from like, there. Eh, going yeah. sideways. <laughs> Getting pushed from there. And well, when they have tropical storms in the Southeast US, uh, you'll get pelagic birds showing up in reservoirs in Tennessee. You right, know, right. That's weird things surprising. like that. They just yeah. get in trained in these storms. I think yeah, if we had the ability to to search more areas, you know, to see more country uh, around where the storm was, it wouldn't surprise me if there were birds that got entrained in this one as well uh, that showed up. But I don't know if any that seemed obvious storm refugees. It seemed cool to me how long the storm petrels um, persisted in the channel. So I kind of I keep track um, of what birds I see when I go back and forth to the island. 
And there there were still a number of them until I think it was about Wednesday. And then they started dropping down into, well, here's one or there's another. And so they were still around, but their numbers started to kind of really diminish. I noticed one today um, when I was when I was coming in. So there there's still a few around, but not that huge collection. The other kind of fun birds I've been seeing on those are phalaropes. Mm, yeah. Um, so it's getting late in the season for those, so those aren't unusual earlier in the year, but it was interesting to see several, I saw a dozen or more on the, the morning after, uh, the Saturday after the, the big wind. Yeah, and I and, just saw a couple of days ago, too. Yeah, there's still a few of them sticking around uh, later than usual. So, yeah, lots of interesting things. And, and like I mentioned at the beginning, this is the season for vagrant birds to show up, our sort of peak season, really. If there's a peak season for vagrant birds, of course, vagrants can show up any time of year. But the late October, early November time period seems to be the high point for unusual birds showing up here. And vagrants are just unusual birds. They're not like lazy birds or, you know, they, they have homes. Yeah, Sorry, no, that's a, I mean, I don't know if that's a technical <laughs> term or not, but yeah, vagrancy <laughs> is, is something that some people actually devote their study to vagrancy. Right. And they're saying like, what's going on with these birds? What do they tell us about bird ecology and, and mm-hmm. bird bird physiology and migration patterns and those sorts of things. And there have been some interesting discoveries around vagrancy, but the uh, birds that show up here, some some of the vagrants are, are just sort of off course a little bit. Right. Like maybe they normally migrate more to the west or more to the east, and then they get pushed a little off their regular course. But the more unusual ones that tend to show up this time of year, I think, are ones that went the wrong direction. Yeah. And they end up kind of lost and wandering a little bit. And so that's another form of vagrancy or reason for mm-hmm. things to show up outside their, their normal area. But before we uh, leave this storm topic, I, I did want to also mention there was a big tidal push when that storm moved through. There's a site, again, on NOAA. You can look at the current water levels. There's a tide station in Sitka. So it will show you a graph of the predicted tide levels and then the actual observed tide levels. And in the hours that the storm pushed through here, there was a two-foot tidal surge. Uh, so the forecast high tide that evening at around 9 p.m. Friday evening was around eight feet, and the actual tide was around 10 feet. And I think we maybe take for granted sometimes how much of a cushion our tide range gives us. Uh, those of us who've been around a while might remember the, I believe it was 1984 Thanksgiving Day storm, which is kind of a notoriously large storm, uh, big big storm event where there was a forecast tide of 12, a predicted tide of about 12 feet, but a two-foot tide surge on top of that pushed it to 14. I was just talking with somebody on uh, Saturday, last Saturday after this storm, and they were talking about getting a place in Oceanside Trailer Court, which is right on the Oceanside. And shortly after that, that that storm came through and actually washed out the road and everything in front. And, and mm. after that, they built it up with Armor Rock. Same thing happened at Arrowhead Trailer Trailer Park. I remember the waves crashing and, and pushing rocks onto the uh, parking lot at Sandy Beach. Uh, there was a number of places, low-lying areas that got flooded. And it just happened to be that the that the storm surge with that storm and it was an, uh, uh, one of the higher tides of the year combined together to to cause that kind of low flooding. But most of the time, we have plenty of cushion. You can have a two-foot tide surge from um, a storm surge from, from a low-pressure system coming through. And you won't really notice it unless you were kind of expecting a eight foot tide and it turned out to be 10 foot tide. But most of us probably aren't paying that close of attention to the tides. So that was one thing that was interesting to me to note 
was was that kind of tide level difference and how easy it is to just kind of go, oh, well, we don't worry about it, but we hear about those storm surges in other places that are just causing massive flooding. And, and I think those are places that have much lower tide ranges. So they're... And they're flatter. <laughs> and they're flatter, yeah. So <laughs> both of those contributing to, to make them more susceptible, more, more vulnerable to that sort of a flooding. I do remember that storm. That's why I, I was living here then. That's why I think it was later than um, 1984 because I didn't it might have live been here then. It was one of those um, two years. But though. I definitely remember we lived on the boat in A&B Harbor and the pilings were, you know, the hoops that go around the pilings were getting frighteningly close to the top. That was that was what I really noticed. And then the water going all the way under A and B Hall. Mm. Um, so it was it was probably even more than that. But it was it was definitely hopping in the harbor, um, you know, both storm wise and then the water level was pretty incredible. I'm sure where I live now that the water was actually into that same lot, that lot thirteen that I was talking about it was probably completely around one of the houses which becomes like a tiny little island i guess at the best scene it's still an island but if we got too much of a storm surge that's probably the one house um out on the island that would be in trouble be vulnerable yeah Yeah. and our highest tides this time of year it's one of the things i like to try and get out for is the highest tide of the year which is typically in the fall or winter around midday that the tides here is both associated with new moons and full moons. And I can't remember which one has the slightly higher uh, predicted tides, but then it's always a question of, you know, our highest tides predicted tend to be between 12 and 13 feet. Occasionally there's a 13 foot tide predicted and occasionally it's only in the 11s that the predicted, but generally speaking, there's some time when there's a low pressure system coming through and you get enough of a storm surge to push it up a little bit. And one of those will make the, make the highest tide of the year. I don't, I don't know why that's just one of those things I like to to try and chase down every year and take some pictures. I usually go out to Star Gavin and the highest tides, I've actually seen parts of the boardwalk underwater on that estuary life trail there, which is uh, kind of impressive. It fills up that whole, whole area there. So it is, yeah, it is kind of fun this, this past week. Actually, there were a uh, low tide series that we got. I think it's the first probably 12 foot tide since last winter. Certainly the first one that I've seen had some high tides this, this past week during the middle of the day. I was able to get out there and, and take a look at those, but nowhere near uh, the the boardwalk. They're still well below the level of the boardwalk. So uh, one of those things that I like to do in the fall. Are there other notable storms that you remember or experiences from Well, and I wish I remembered what year this was. Probably the most intense and memorable storm happened at some point when my kids were little. And I don't remember exactly how old. They, they were school age for sure. Um, we definitely did not go to school that day. Um, the peak of the storm was during the day. And we had a, a weather station and the, the winds at the house, we, we saw at least 185. Um, and the trees you, were... You saw one gust that was at 85? Least, and that's from yeah. memory. So, yeah. you know, I, I actually, we have records and I could go back and dig through and look at that. But the trees were like flying around the house. There were... Um, several trees went down, um, big trees, you know, these are a hundred plus tall trees that were flying and they were, some of them were incredibly close to the house. Fortunately, they did not hit the house, but it was, the wind was so loud when these immense trees would fall and hit the ground, you couldn't hear it. Fact is the most memorable one was when we went outside during one of the lulls just to kind of look and see what was going on. 
didn't really go too far beyond the porch, um, but then went back in and then another gust hit and a tree that was, I don't know, we would have been in a bad place for that one, or at least frightened by that one. It was kind of at the edge of where my vegetable garden is. And it went over and we we didn't hear it fall over. We just noticed because I looked out the window. So it had fallen down in the like a couple of minutes, you know, in between <laughs> looking at coming in and looking out the window. And it was inaudible. Um, this immense tree because the wind was so loud. So the wind was like kind of like a jet roar. It was kind so, of like a jet roar yeah. nonstop. And I, I hear the jet roar normally because, you know, and, and I did I remember every once in a while I'll wake up and I'll go, I hope that's a jet because <laughs> otherwise it's pretty nasty outside. But yeah, it basically was like a jet taking off for it seemed like it went on for about six to eight hours i mean who knows how long it really went on but it was a long day of a storm and there was plenty of damage you know they would parts of the boardwalk got pulled up as these trees fell over the boardwalk actually didn't break um which was kind of lucky and the house was safe which is good all the people were safe the dogs were safe so Good outcome altogether, but it was intense. Yeah. Is that the one where you lost your greenhouse? Uh, yes. I had a, a smaller greenhouse then that was well built, you know, it was a kit greenhouse, all that. I was watching out the window and it just kind of got picked up. And it, one time it got picked up and put down. The next time it got picked up and just smashed all over the place. It was like, okay. I mean, there was nothing that was going to save that poor thing. Yeah, wow. And you have a view of the water. Do you do you uh, see the, I mean, imagine, obviously you see the waves, but I just like have any reflections on the, the sort of the, the ocean states in some of these storms? Well, some, what's, what's actually kind of fun to watch is when the gusts, you can watch the gusts come across Eastern Channel. Um, so you can, you know, you can see it kind of like starting all the kind of... Um, the water in the air and it just kind of starts moving and it's 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 not usually like a big area of that it's these pockets of these these gusty bits of um, wind-driven water that come across sometimes there i have i have a few pictures of someone fishing <laughs> um, i don't know if it was last year or the year before uh, i was just like oh my gosh i got my eye on that boat making sure they're okay <laughs> taking pictures um they were fine they were they were happy as clams out there, but yeah, it was it's pretty interesting. Yeah, different people definitely have different tolerances for what's acceptable conditions to be out in, and I imagine the the nature of the boat also matters. Yes, uh, I would deal. not have wanted to be out there in my skiff. Yeah, yeah, it is kind of an interesting thing. Storms where if you have a secure place, I, I've mentioned often, and that it would be interesting to see what it's like, the waves breaking on the outer coast and, and some of those headlands where you see the wave-washed. I mean, when you're out there in the calm in the summertime, you know, you see the, the wave-washed rock that's bare way high, and you're like, well, the only way that that stays bare is if it gets washed off from time to time. But as you point out, being in the forest is no picnic. Uh, it can actually be as or more dangerous than being anywhere else. And the so it's like the question is, where could you be kind of secure? Maybe one of those old World War II bunkers or something <laughs> that are all concreted in and sort of pe- peering that out fill there. Fill up yeah. with water. No. Yeah. Uh, but that, that, is, that is something that is, you know, from the, from the safety and security and being able to sort of stick our head out the door, it's 
I, I do find it interesting and, and storms are kind of fun, but, but yeah, they can turn from fun to intense and scary in a, right. in a moment. It's, it is kind of funny how your secure place can end up not feeling very secure at times, you know, yeah. when the windows are rattling and the whole house is shaking, you're like, okay, I think this is good. We've done this before. Um, I'll often will draw the blinds. It's like, okay, if something hits the window and it breaks, maybe at least the glass will be contained. Um, but yeah, it, it, I, there's definitely places I would not have wanted to been, you know, down in the common area going for a little stroll um, during that storm. But I've always been pretty, calm, pretty a little bit cautious about that because it doesn't take a very big branch to fall down on you and hit you the wrong way and have some very sad consequences. Yeah. So I'm, I'm often a little bit more nervous about walking through the forest. You know, that's always my first barrier. Um, the water often will not be my favorite thing either, but the forest is like, eh, you know, it's just blowing too hard for me to like wander through this. I've seen trees fall down when it's flat calm. So I'm like, okay. I mean, I'm probably more, you know, namsy pamsy than some people, but you've seen enough things fall over. You're like, well, do I want to be under that? <laughs> yeah. Well, it is it is an interesting sort of dynamic. Our, our understanding, appreciation, and tolerance of, of risk uh, and things that, you know, when we see them, they, they become much more alive forest, so to mm-hmm. speak, uh, as opposed to these abstract, well, yeah, I know trees can fall, but I've never actually seen them falling very much. Whereas when you're walking through the forest and you see the aftermath of, of you know, three or four trees down along your trail, that uh, brings it home in a way that, that most of us probably just driving on the roads around town don't really uh, yeah, get sense Yeah, and of. I've seen them fall too. I mean, literally yeah. watched them fall and it's, it's impressive. Um, you know, you, you have more time. It's not like you're going to stand there and watch it fall on you, but... Yeah, it, there's there's a certain, you know, I, and I tend to be, a, I, I'm, I would think of myself as being at least moderately risk adverse. <laughs> that may be a slight understatement, but so I'll just like, mm-hmm, it's cool. <laughs> yeah, well, no sense in, I mean, if there's no reason to go through the forest in the wind, then... Uh, then I don't do no it. Reason to I, do can, it. I can see the action from the windows. Yeah, yeah, it is... I haven't been out on the trails much since the storm or at all, really. So I'm not sure if there was a lot of uh, trees falling across trails. I know that's one of the things that can often happen in the in the wake of these storms to see some of the trails. It was, I think, 2004, we had a big storm. And I don't remember what the direction of the wind was, but I think there was a big um, uh, thing out at the cove, the little harbor out towards the ferry terminal. And they had a big um, sort of covered area thing there that got blown apart. And I think I went up... This I believe the storm was in November, and I went up Verstovia Trail in December, and I think I counted 40 trees across the trail uh, going up to the ridge. And then that particular day, I came down into Indian River, and Indian River Trail, there were, like there was one tree down. Right. So it was just you know the pockets of, of protection. And that is one thing that I've noticed, even, even at uh, Totem Park here in town, being on the ocean side versus the river side of the park, the the apparent amount of wind can be dramatically different that uh, just based on the direction of the wind and the fact that the trees are serving as a bit of a wind break. So it is interesting to me the little varieties of pockets of predicted pockets and exposed pockets and and how that can really impact. Uh, like for example, on Saturday last Saturday, going out to Stargaven, it was actually pretty calm out there. There was didn't seem to be much wind. The water was pretty flat, but just going to Harbor Point, not that 
far away and there was good white caps and that kind of thing and going to sandy beach there's even more waves and and i guess i should mention speaking of sandy beach reminded me of the sort of the spectacle of the snow geese i didn't catch the biggest spectacle myself but did see a video somebody posted but apparently a couple of thousand at least snow geese were fighting into the wind coming into sandy beach actually landed on the salt water which they don't often do here and then took off again in mass i saw several flocks of snow geese flying over that day Probably Saturday at least, was a good yeah, day for snow geese. At least a thousand birds, probably that I saw, and I'm sure there were many more that I didn't see, based on the reports of others. Uh, one one sort of excitement for me was it looks like in one of my uh, pictures I saw, uh, or I got a picture of a blue goose, which is a huh. blue, blue morph of a snow goose, which well, are pretty cool. unusual for around here, but much darker body, but they still have the white head. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, that was a novelty for me. Hmm. Always fun to chase a little bit of novelty. And, and the geese are still coming through. I just saw another big flock this morning, actually, um, low enough overhead that I'm pretty sure they were Canada geese. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard for me to tell size, but I didn't. they didn't look small enough to be, you know, those little tiny cackling geese. So they look like the, the Canada geese. So it's still kind of fun watching them come in. And the, the birds that I'm seeing, you know, on my commute are still changing. So... You know, I'm not into my my full winter species list where it's always surf scoters and some golden eyes and harlequins and all that. It's still kind of transitional where there's not very many of those yet. You know, there's more like here's a loon here and there and there's still lots of galls and, and, and a few cormorants. But I haven't quite shifted into our, our full on overwintering birds, and at least on the basis of my commute counts. Yeah, my impression is that kind of our winter residents are pretty well established by, mostly established by the beginning of November. Like the buffleheads, I haven't seen any buffleheads yet, for example. Uh, Golden eyes are starting to show up, but they're not, they're still moving through, it feels like. They're kind of very much the ones we're seeing are migrants or they haven't moved inland. Seeing large numbers of harlequin ducks and surf scoters, but again, they don't, seem like the ones that are going to stay for the winter as much. The grebes have returned, horned grebes especially, mm-hmm. and a few redneck grebes around. And so it is an interesting transition. Long-tailed ducks show up kind of seems like usually right. the very end of October, early November. The swans show up usually early November, first half of November. And p- kind of by the time, I, my sense is the swans are kind of the last to arrive. They sort of, they stay north the latest and, and actually they'll be one of the first to leave as well. But they're the the sort of once they've arrived, we're kind of into our wintering wintering bird right. situation. It's hard to tell what you're going to see day to day. Um, yesterday, when I was coming back into town, there were 17 common loons, hmm. um, pretty close to the island dock. Um, so you could look at them, and they were still actually in breeding plumage. So it was very clear that they were common loons. Um, and you don't, you know, I got flagged on that one on my eBird list because it was like that's a lot of common loons to see all at once. But I'm sure there's still a bunch of birds moving um so you just don't know you know quite what you're going to see so it's kind of fun to 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 keep track which is you know makes it very easy ebird actually makes it super easy for me with my little smartphone and you know pressing the button start the checklist and it does a track for where you know i'm going um so i have a, a a whole series of commute counts for Crescent Bay over the years, and some of them are still in a calendar, you know, in a handwritten calendar, which is not as easy to to make use of. But it is kind of fun to see how, how birds change day to day and how they change seasonally. 
Well, and if folks are interested in birds, certainly, as I mentioned earlier, I'm very interested if you're seeing anything unusual, because it is the time of year we get these unusual uh, birds that show up out of range or out of season. But it is also a very social thing. There's a lot of folks in town that are interested in birds and kind of keeping track of the birds. Some of us are doing eBird and posting regularly there. And so that's always a nice way, if you're if you're into that sort of thing, to keep track on a regular basis. You don't, well, or irregular basis. It doesn't have to be regular, but your data goes into this giant data depository, essentially, that that is available for scientists who are so inclined to ask some questions and try and answer them based on the data. It's a citizen science geared thing, but also just uh, makes it easier to keep track of your own mm-hmm. sightings sort of thing. So there's there's some pluses there for individuals as well who are in, interested in that. But many people just enjoy getting out and looking or taking pictures or looking at pictures that other people have taken. I think there's folks that, that enjoy all of those to varying degrees. And so there are some places that you can go for Sitka Birds in particular. There's the Sitka Birds Facebook group, a number of folks there regularly posting pictures of the birds that they're seeing around. There's also a Sitka Birds email list. If you go to my website, sitkanature.org, you can find links to actually both the email list and the Facebook group. Um, And beyond that, there's birds for Alaska. There's uh, Alaska birds. There's national bird Facebook groups and various places online. So lots of places that you can observe what other people are seeing. Alaska rare birds is another interesting one. People post pictures there of, of unusual birds for the state. Also a Facebook group. Facebook seems to be where a lot of these groups have coalesced. There are definitely ones that aren't on Facebook, but but many of them have coalesced around Facebook if you're using the Facebooks. So those are, those are opportunities out there. Um, yeah, well, as I mentioned early, it's been February since we last talked mm-hmm. for the radio show. So that does mean that there was some summer season and some spring season. And it was a little bit of a gray summer this year, I would say. Yeah, uh, and, I think that's a fair statement. <laughs> and so maybe didn't have as many adventures as, as might enjoy on some other summers. But was there anything in particular that stands out to you about this summer that that you want to share about? The, the, the thing that's popping into my brain has very little to do with Sitka. <laughs> and it's, it's my trip that I went on to St. Lawrence Island, um, which was kind of was, it was in the spring, actually, it was in May and early June. And I had been thinking about going out there forever. It was it's kind of it's a birding spot. Basically, it's a it's a place to go to go look at birds that are kind of lost from Asia or just unusual. You know, it has its own um, group of nesting birds too that are that are fairly unusual. So I I got to go on that trip. Um, one so, of the well, just to oh, go ahead. to give context for people, Saint Lawrence Island is in the Bering, Bering sea. sea. It is <laughs> what? Well, Gamble Gamble is usually, on the west end of it. Is what fifty miles from from, so, from uh, Siberia? Yes. From yeah. Russia, yes. Yeah, from Russia. So, and was it actually visible? Could you yes, see the, you can see Russia from there. You can see Russia which from I there, kind of so. enjoyed saying, of course. Um. So it's closer to Russia there than it is to Alaska. Oh at that yes, point. yes. And you, so, you definitely Asian birds are. are what people are there. They are, and they're 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 thicker there in the in the fall than in the spring. But I went in spring, um, and now I'm super glad I did because it was it turned out to be a, a, a good little window <laughs> in the pandemic universe where that was. Um, easy to to pull off 
Um, so we got to go there. We went to stopped in Nome, um, got to do a little birding there, and then took a, a, a Bering Air flight out to Gamble. Um, and it was super fun. And one of the reasons why it was fun, and one of the reasons why I like to kind of travel around in Alaska, and birding is just one of my excuses. Um, plants are too. Um, is because um, the ice was really still very thick in the Bering Strait and the Bering Bering Sea, I should say. And it was, there was mostly the the ice was almost all the way around the island. Um, So it was really cool for me to actually get to see that sea ice out there. So I I kind of, I was, I was pretty thrilled by that. Have you seen sea ice before? Um, only a, a, a few times off of Barrow when I worked up there for a couple of weeks one summer. The, the sea ice was once close enough to have a good view of it. Um, but this was the only time I'd been there in the, you know, kind of the spring season of it where it was, you know, the extent was, was pretty good um, where we were. They were still doing um, walrus hunts and lots of seal hunts because of this was happening. Um, so that was also kind of an interesting part of it. Um, but but the, the sea ice kind of created like this little, there was an area, you know, between the beach and between the ice that was a variable size, but the birds would kind of congregate in that area, making it a little bit easier. Oh, so some them. of the water birds? Yes. Yeah. And did you see any, one of the highlights people are going there for, or the reasons many people go there are for these Asian vagrants? Was there any in particular that stood out to you that uh, you got to see? So some of the fun birds were all the auklets um, to me. They were, they, there's, shoot, least parakeet crested auklets that were in abundance um, nesting on the cliffs. And we also got to see dovekeys, which are pretty unusual in this part of, in that part of the world, I should say. More if you want to see them, you go to Newfoundland or, you know, East Coast someplace. Um, so that was super fun. Um, I had been chasing white wagtails. It seemed like I've seen white wagtails in Greece. I've seen white wagtails in Iceland, but never in Alaska. So I finally got to see one of those in the state. And then a bird I've seen before, but I just love to see are the Siberian blue throats. Um, got to see those and they just have the the most wonderful crickety kind of sound <laughs> when they're when they're calling and flying. So it was it was a super interesting experience both to see um, the village of Gamble and meet the people who are there and you know see a a, a really different landscape um, with some with some cool birds too. So getting Gamble is a little bit I guess logistically, you need to go through Nome. Is that kind of the deal? Yes. Yeah. And then how far is it from Nome? It was a full hour. Oh, a full uh, hour flight? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah so that was, it, and it was, yeah, it, it felt like it was fast because, you know, you're out looking at all the ice and all that. I forgot to mention, we got to see an ivory gull, um, which was also a super cool thing to eat. It was actually eating pieces of, or to see, it was eating um, leftover pieces of seal that were along the beach. Um, That was, yeah, that was cool. (laughs) I think ivory gulls are one of those that folks um, visit Barrow in October. Yes, yes. So it was much nicer to see them. And they were super cooperative. They were very happy eating what they were eating. So everyone got very good looks at them. Um, There were people with great and immense and beautiful cameras that got 
amazing pictures of them. I got adequate pictures with my camera. Um, but it was just, yeah, it was super fun just to actually get to watch those birds. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder what your experience was like. So you had a professional guide uh, yes. for, for this trip that that goes there and probably elsewhere. I think a lot of these folks that yeah. are bird guides go, they don't specialize in one area. They're seasonal Right. Yeah, they're basically itinerant bird guides. And that's what their skills focused on. And so what was it like to, uh, to be around folks that have presumably a much higher level of sort of birding skill? Than it was pretty, it was pretty fun. I actually really enjoyed it. I've never gone on a guided, you know, bird trip before. I, I chose that for this, this location because it just logistically, it made a lot of sense to me and I'm very glad I did it. Um, but it was very fun, you know, having um, two guides. One really seemed like they spent more time doing logistics and working things out with, with, you know, where we were staying and how we were getting around and stuff like that. And the other one that very much focused on getting us the birds, you know, helping us find them and making sure we saw them and was super attentive to people because I think I was one of the younger people on the trip. There was my, my ATV partner was younger, but you know, pretty much, you know, and, and I'm not a spring chicken, um, but they were great with everyone. I thought it was, um, Super fun. I, I'm definitely thinking of doing it again just because it was really interesting. Um, I learned a lot just from listening to the guide talk about the sounds, too, um, which is always a little bit harder, to, at least for me, to pick up. Um, so that was really handy. Yeah, it can definitely help having somebody point things out in direct your attention to things in real time as you're trying to learn things like sound or even even uh, field marks and the things that matter that you're looking at. And I know my experience with birds sometimes is, well, I just, I know what that is because I know what's around here. And other people are like, well, how do you know? And then I have to right. stop and I go, okay, <laughs> how do I know? Yeah. And with somebody who's used to doing that professionally and they're working with people all the time, I, I s- imagine that the clientele the the other folks on those sorts of trips are a mixed bag in terms of their their particular interests in birds i know that there are folks that are very interested in sort of the game of building up a list and there are others that are very interested in bird behavior and those kind of things and you know there's a wide variety of things over the years i've i've learned that uh, approaches i guess we'll say that people take to those and so i'm i am curious about the sort of the characters of of the other of your other fellow travelers on, on this trip where they're, you know, what was your impression of, of being around with birders? Cause I, I imagine if this was your first guided trip, it's the first time you probably were hanging around other birders that you didn't already know. Yeah. It was one of the few times, uh, the other time when, uh, friends and I went to Nome to look for birds, we interacted with other, you know, birder groups, you know, but not, you know, wasn't really part of those. Um, it was an interesting group of people. Actually, they're all super nice, um, which was very pleasant when you're going to spend, you know, 10 days with people. Um, some people were kind of more into lists. Some people just, let, I enjoyed the spectacle. I think all of us were also there because it was an interesting place um, and a place that, um you know, that was difficult to get to. But I think I, two of us had never been on a, a guided bird trip before. Um, and everyone else had done more. And I, I had this feeling that some of them, that was just a way to travel different places, build up their lists, go to exotic locations, um, and, and learn something about those spots. Yeah, I get the impression 
folks that like to travel, it's helpful to have a, a, a reason for traveling other than just traveling, a, sort of a focus to one's trip, I guess. And I know you've, you've spoken in the past of going to Mexico and Greece, and the focus of those trips was sort of a yoga tr- retreat. The excuse for those trips was a yoga retreat, but the experience was much broader than that. Oh, yeah. There's and tons of cool plants. So, <laughs> so the, uh, the, these birding trips, as you, you, know, you mentioned, the plants and birds, and, and I think you've done both sorts of trips around Alaska as sort of excuses right. for, for getting out and exploring some different, different parts of the world. Right. And Alaska is so huge. And the, every place is so different. It's, you know, I'm slowly working my array around the state. Um, I still have, I still have places I haven't been, but it was just fascinating. It was nice to get to meet the people who live there. There was, um, the local corporation ran the, the, the lodge, the hotel. Um, we brought our own cook with us, but that was, that was expected. Um, and then in the evenings, there was time set aside for the local carvers to come in and, you know, show and sell their wares. It was it was definitely a way that um, people were making cash money. Mm. Um, so we got to talk to a bunch of them. And like I was, I know I've said this before. When you're from Sitka, it's actually a, a, it's a good thing when you go to a lot of places up north and west because people, the people I was talking to, had good memories of being either at Mount Edgecombe at the high school or at Sheldon Jackson College. So being from Sitka, for most of the people I've encountered, actually, I still haven't encountered anyone that that was a negative. Um, It's actually kind of a nice little intro. Hmm. Interesting. And I suppose uh, maybe it's worth mentioning, you did have one brush with fame during this trip. Oh, yes. That was pretty fun. (laughs) And that was when we were in Nome. So we were, um, we had time, we flew back from Gamble, and we had a few hours before our our trip to, you know, back to Anchorage and, and on from there. And so we were fortunate that our, our guide, figured out how to get a van to use a a van that the they had another tour coming but they didn't quite need it yet so we um were doing some birding around Nome and you know actually driving out towards safety sound as well and we stopped in one spot to look for godwits um kind of were looking around there on the bridge for a while and then drove down onto the beach um (laughs) we were walking down towards the beach and a guy was sitting in his car um on, on the beach said hey I just saw a Ross's skull over there. And our guide was like, well, okay, you know, what did it, you know, look like? Or <laughs> so, so for context, again, <laughs> Ross's skulls are another one of those. Yeah. Really, they, they can be vagrant most anywhere in North America, I, I think, but they're very unusual and very much a high Arctic. Right, kind right. Of, this is a high Arctic gull. another and late fall in, in Barrow sort yeah, of Yeah, uh, and our, our guide was being very polite, but didn't want to just say, you know, okay. And then we he pointed, the guy pointed, you know, it's over there. And, and then, you know, we started looking over there. And I was walking away and I was like, that man looked really familiar to me. <laughs> and I couldn't quite figure it out. And, and my ATV partner was Rayers, you know who that was, don't you? And I was like, said, was it David Sibley? <laughs> and yes, indeed, it was David Sibley who pointed out the Ross's goal to us. And we saw it, you know, it took us a while to, to pick it out. And then we saw it and got really good, again, really good looks at it. And I guess our other brush was fame is that he had managed to get his vehicle stuck in the sand. So our, our, our group um, got to 
dig out his tires and push out David Sibley out of the sand. So that was that was our woo near to greatness moment. So for those who aren't aware of who David Sibley is, <laughs> if you get a bird guide, he's one of the more well-known bird guide authors, uh, artist, and illustrator of, of birds in particular. Natural history, probably more generally, but but really, um, birds are kind of the thing. So the Sibley's Guide to Birds are mm-hmm. one of the more popular bird uh, guides for North America. So that's a uh, yeah, kind of a, a fun little trip. People well known in the birding circles anyway. People are regularly go right. Up oh, and there were definitely area. we encountered at least three people doing big years on mm-hmm. this trip. Um, one man actually came out to gamble while we were there, and we birded around with him with one for one day, and then we ran into two other people in Nome um, who were chasing birds on their big year trip. Um, so that was kind of an interesting <laughs> little bit of birding culture that it's, it's kind of foreign to me, but um, they, they seem to be very into it and friendly about it. You know, they weren't, they weren't crazy. Well, okay. They weren't noticeably, one, one they were be, still friendly. One, one could be friendly and, and a little bit, a uh, little bit off as well. <laughs> Doing a big year is, is one of those things that uh, takes a special sort of, uh, special sort of something to, to pocketbook really, for one thing. Yeah, uh, they can be a little expensive. Some folks are able to do it on something of a budget, but it is, it is fairly expensive. Right. Flying all, all over travel. the place, trying to chase the, chase the birds. So yeah, it was just, it was an interesting experience altogether and it was worth every penny I paid for it, I think. So would you, so I'm thinking like in Alaska, a lot of the flora and fauna, the diversity is relatively low. So, and the, and the, not only the diversity, but the, the density of the diversity is relatively low. And so it feels a little bit possible to kind of not be completely overwhelmed and visiting different places, especially when you're already familiar with some of this stuff. But I wonder, having had this experience now with a guide, if, if you were to travel to, tropical more areas where you have like ridiculous levels of diversity both birds and plants uh what you would would you would you really go for the guide there i probably would particularly if i was if i spent the time and money to go you know someplace subtropical or tropical um where i also maybe was not as as super fluent in the local language i mean i can speak spanish but it's 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 nowhere near what I would consider to be fluent. Um, But I wouldn't have a freaking clue about really what I was seeing um, or hearing and having a guide. I think maybe you don't spend all, all, all your time with a guide, but you know, having, having moments with a guide or, you know, or days with a guide, I think would be really, really handy. I mean, when I've gone to, like you said, when I've gone to Mexico or I went to Greece, I went there doing something else and I would just um, bird and, and botanize, you know, on my, my free time and, you know, figure things out as best I could. Um, and that was fun because that, that just fit in and just added to the whole experience for me. But if I was going to be really focused on this is what I'm doing is natural history, um, I would definitely want a guide. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the places in, I think it's Peru, where they did, they uh, a group of folks went for the world record big day. And I want to say they got 400 species in a day I'm of not birds. surprised, yeah. And I think in the week or two that they spent sort of working, preparing for that one day, I think they saw over 500 species, which is more species than the entire state of Alaska right. is recorded pretty much. Uh, maybe there's a few more than 500, but it's it's uh, Im- impressive 
how much uh, diversity is is crammed into relatively small right. areas. Right, and, in some and of those places. my botanical training is okay for Europe. I mean, it's not like the same, but you know, the the plant families are things that I've you know spent a little bit more time so with. So in the northern sort the of the northern, um, but when I go south, I'm like, okay, there's a whole another suite of plant families that I you know maybe I've heard about a couple of times, but. I still don't, I don't have a good handle on. So, and it, it's hard to always like, well, what's the best Florida, you know, um, or book to start with? Um, so that's, that would be a challenge as well. But yeah, spending a little bit of time with a guide. Um, I don't know how common botanical guides are, but um, it would be pretty handy. Or even in a botanical garden sometimes mm. is the place is the place to go and see, because a lot of them do also have um, native local plants. I wonder, so one of the places that I've heard has a reputation for plant diversity, extreme plant diversity, is South Africa. Mm-hmm. And like every every mountain there is so old that it has right. its unique flora kind of thing. And there are folks on iNaturalist, it's a pretty good contingent of folks from South Africa doing not just plants, but, but plants in particular. And I wonder if iNaturalist might be a good inroad for right. finding some of those. Uh, I've, I've used that before, um, like when I've gone up to the Kotzebue area in Kobuk Dunes. And um, and actually, I did the same thing when I went out to Gambles. I looked at iNaturalist as a source. I actually also looked at museum records. So it could kind of get a sense yeah. of what had been there but again i have a familiarity where i'm like oh okay i know what that is you know i i would have to do a lot more studying with a place like south africa um you know i i, I don't think i'd want to print everything out <laughs> but it would be like okay uh you know yeah I, it would it's not a bad way to start but i i'd probably want to have that at my fingertips and and a guide well and and i guess that would be a potential place to find some folks that might know of a guide or, or be right, themselves. Right. I've had a, I, a few people reach out to me about coming to Sitka. Uh, you know, in some cases, they're just interested in a particular thing that's here. But at least one person that I've <clears throat> met up with and gone out with that was, uh, you know, they were only in town for a few hours on a on a lay- flight layover and we went out and did some iNaturalisting right. out and around. So it's... Uh, Interesting the way that that you can sort of reach out, and I think more people are doing that as they're traveling. But I have gotten, I did use iNaturalist in both, in in the foreign lands I have been, and usually people are jumping in. Hmm. Um, You know, it's like I'll, especially in, like I said, in Europe, I have a family usually I can attach to it, and a probable genus. Um, But in Mexico, everything I've taken pictures of and posted of, I've gotten feedback on, which is actually pretty darn nice. Mm, so nice, people yeah. are, are chipping in. Well, that's always helpful. Well, in the last couple of minutes that we have here, I wanted to just mention, check in about the Natural History Seminar Series. I know it's been on hiatus for over a year now. You had a chance to organize some talks through other means in the meantime. And yeah, just wondered what your thoughts are on that. Looking forward to maybe it coming back in the future at some point. I am very much looking forward to it coming back. And, you know, who knows, maybe this winter I'll, I'll figure out how to organize a couple based out of Sitka. This fall, I was able to get set up Elizabeth Graham as a speaker for one of the evenings at Egan. Um, I'm sorry if you missed that, but it is available as a recording by going to the evenings at Egan site. So that's that's one good opportunity for folks. I'd also recommend people look at the Campbell Creek Science Center near Anchorage. They're having some good talks this fall. And next up, actually this week, is Pat Druckermiller talking about dinosaurs in Alaska. 
Nice. He's somebody that's given talks here. I always enjoyed his presentations. So Campbell Creek Science Center out of Anchorage and Evenings at Eden is based out of Juneau. Both of those are available online. You can search for those or I will try and get a link from you to post on my site when I post the recording of this show. So my guest this week has been Kitty Labounty. I want to thank you for joining me here. Thanks so much for inviting me to speak with you. It's always fun to have a chance to check in about natural history stuff and what we've been seeing out there. And as always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com. You can also get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Several folks have sent me messages there about some of the things they're seeing. You can also find recordings of past shows at sitkanature.org slash raven. I want to thank you for joining me here this week on the Sitka Nature Show. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.